Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I am your host for today, Dra Rusi, Senior Director of the American Sephardi Federation Institute of Jewish Experience. At the American Sephardi Federation, we try to see beyond the Ashkenazi world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today, we are delighted to speak with Professor Laura Arnold Liebman. Professor Liebman is a professor of English and Humanities at Reed College. Her work focuses mainly on how material culture changes our understanding of the role of women, children, and Jews of color in the early Atlantic world. She has written The Art of the Jewish Family, A History of Women in Early New York, in Five Objects, Messianism, Secrecy, and Mysticism, A New Interpretation of Early American Life, among others, and numerous articles. Today, we'll be discussing one of her latest books, once We Were Slaves, the, extra, the Extraordinary Journey of a Multiracial Jewish Family, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. So welcome, Laura, and thank you for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by saying how much I love your social media posts about material culture and anybody who doesn't follow her. I love what she posts there. So we have to start with that just because it draws you in. Um, and of course, you're writing as well. But as you know, visuals are a wonderful way to start the day. So thank you for that. And okay. given that uh, introduction, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you were drawn to the type of research you do? Yeah. So my background, I actually started off in Native American studies. And I originally worked on, just as I do now, the early Atlantic world. And in Native American studies for the colonial period, visuals are just so important, whether you're working on early Mexico City and the codices that really are a blending of different visual and textual writing systems, or as I did for my dissertation and first book, we're working on early New England, where again, you still see that same kind of combining. Visuals continue to play a really important way of under really important way for us to understand what's going on in terms of cultural traditions, because um, it's one more resource for getting out what's happening in early American life beyond the text, particularly for groups of people such as Native Americans or in some parts of Jewish communities, Jews who didn't leave written records. So I really tend to focus on the people who get left out of archives as opposed to the people where you have tons and tons of textual resources for them. And so here you kind of focus on one particular family. Can you tell us how you started with this? I mean, if you're coming from Native Americans and then moving into this Jewish family, can you tell us how you your eyes were open to it? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously I'd had a couple of books in between where I was working on early Jewish American communities and I think those really helped because it meant I had already been to tons and tons of archives and done lots of research. And this particular book took about 10 years to research and write, which is 
for me at least, really, really slow. You know, that you have this fantasy that books just kind of pop out of thin air, and this one really didn't. But I would say this book in particular really draws off of some of that early experience I had working with Native American communities in terms of its attention to how racial categories actually are, if not fluid, at least move around a lot more in this particular period. So the the 18th century and early 19th century than we think about them doing today. So that how somebody was understood and their race might have been different in terms of where they were living. And then secondly, again, back to this earlier thing of how do I write a history about people who either often didn't leave records or even if they had, those records were so unlikely to have been preserved in a archive or at least not just one archive, you know, that they're kind of spread all around the world. And that interest in terms of of what it means to try and recapture stories that have been deliberately suppressed was so much behind once we were slaves that it was about this family, but it was also this larger community study, just like my earlier work where I'm interested in people and individuals, but the way that they get at these larger patterns that are going on in early America. So you talked about the difficulty of finding these resources. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology over those 10 years of research? Yeah, sure. So just as a background, the Once We Were Slaves is about a multiracial Jewish family that had begun their lives enslaved on the island of Barbados at the very end of the 18th century. And then over the next 30 years, they make their way around the Atlantic world, first going to Suriname and then going to London and going to New York and Philadelphia. And finally, by the time that the sister of the pair passes away, right around the age of 30, um, they become some of the wealthiest Jews in New York. So you can already see from that, that sort of kernel of a story, that movement that they're doing really um, part of my method was trying to collect little fragments of pieces from the various different archives, the places that they lived, but also the places where those archives ended up since most of them were former colonies, the records for Barbados and the records for Suriname live in multiple places. They live both in the countries themselves, but also the countries that colonized them. So. So first, there is that kind of following their travels aspect to it. And then I would say, and so in, in that sense, like doing historical work is a little bit like being a detective, right? Only a really freakishly slow detective story, right? Like nobody would ever watch this detective story on TV because they'd be like, wow, it took you five years to find the one piece of evidence you wanted. But really that sort of slowness of being able to come go back to archives again and again and look for pieces was super important. Um, the other thing I would say is really trying at various points to think about if I didn't have information that the information I fantasized that would have been left, um, which I would say is always the case that you like fantasize oh, I'll find, you know, letters that they wrote or something like that, or diaries. And those things really just by and large didn't exist for, um, at least for Sarah and Isaac, the, the siblings that I was following. Some of their descendants had letters um, that really trying to think about, okay, 
what kinds of evidence do I have and how can I kind of nuance that in order to get at the texture of their lives? Thank you. So you started to talk about the story already a little bit. That was yeah, sorry. Be um, that's yeah. good. Uh, tell us, I want to take one step back though. Once yeah. we were slaves, how did you get to the name? That's an interesting title. Yeah, so it comes from the Passover Haggadah, and I was really sort of you know, timely in terms of um, when we're yeah. recording this, we're heading towards Passover, um, or when you're listening to it, perhaps it's just after Passover, but um, really I was trying to think about the ways in which we often on this yearly basis as Jews think about this issue of slavery, but we think about it in this much distant, much more distant past most of the time. Um, obviously, some people in Jewish communities have more recent ancestors who were enslaved in the Americas apropos of this very book, right? Like that people, um, often sometimes people who didn't even know it, had ancestors who were enslaved in the Americas. But I really wanted to sort of get at thinking about um, what was potentially in some ways like the difference between those two visions of slavery, of slavery in the distant, distant past, as opposed to slavery in the present. And definitely part of the Passover imagining is that we're supposed to go through that process of thinking about what it means to be enslaved. And here you actually talk about family that has slaves within the family. And so, like I said, you started to talk about the story a little bit. Can you Talk a little bit about the siblings and when it, the years that it started and the years we go through here. Yeah, so it starts with this pair of siblings, Sarah, uh, her, her married name is Sarah Brandon Moses, but Sarah Rodriguez Brandon and Isaac Lopez Brandon are their birth names. They're born on the island of Barbados in the last decade of the 18th century and they're born enslaved. Their father is a Sephardic Jew, he's Portuguese. And their mother is an enslaved woman who is enslaved to a Sephardic family in Bridgetown, the main town in, in on the island of Barbados. And it's the main place where Jews live. And not only their mother and them, but four generations of their family had been enslaved to this particular Sephardic family. And it's not a particularly wealthy family. They're just sort of growing up in this middling merchant family like merchant not as in like I own big ships, but merchant as in I own a store, family in Bridgetown. And through the book, I follow their process as they get freed from slavery by their father, as they inherit a house from their grandfather, their mother's father, who's a white Anglican man, as they move to Suriname and convert to Judaism officially, because since their mother was not born halakhically Jewish, they have to go through a conversion. And then as they come, the brother comes back to Barbados and gets very involved in civil rights activism on the island, particularly on behalf of Jews. The sister goes on to London where she goes to this really fancy Sephardic boarding school, courtesy her father. And eventually both of them marry, come to the United States um, and are, have married into this very wealthy, again, merchant family, but here a a little bit more like I own lots of real estate and ships family in New York um, that also has ties to Philadelphia and they the brother goes into business with his brother-in-law and so I trace that whole family history of them going through this transformation as they move from place to place around the Atlantic world 
But then I also look at what happens to their descendants. So particularly that next generation of their children, and in some cases, their children's children, the people who ended up donating some of the major items to American Jewish Historical Society. So I'm really interested in how the ways in which their story in the various locations that they live helps us get at the larger story of multiracial Jews during this time period, but also um, highlights some of the ways in which they're really, really exceptional, that their father was a tremendously wealthy man by the end of his life, and he gives a fair amount of that wealth to the siblings and allows them to prosper in ways that are just totally unrepresentative of most people um, who were born enslaved on the island of Barbados are actually probably enslaved anywhere in the Americas um, in terms of their opportunities. Um, so really trying to tease out these issues of what makes them exceptional and also what aspects of their life can help us understand the larger group of people living in early America who have sort of one foot in African-American or Afro-Caribbean communities and one foot in Jewish communities. And so when you follow them through all these different journeys, you touch upon a lot of the original uh, Jewish communities across the Americas um, and the different ones, including uh, Philadelphia, including uh, New York, including Barbados and Suriname, like you said. So did you have connections to each of those places when you were doing this research? Did How did you follow them through all those places? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I would say um, this is one of the, this is one of the reasons why their story was exciting for me was as somebody who had been working on these communities for um, by now 20 years or something like that, that um, it was really a way to kind of introduce people who didn't know much about early American Jewish communities, particularly Sephardic communities, since the family is Sephardic, um, to introduce them to what's the common ground between those communities, but also what makes each one of them distinctive, because each one has its own sort of local flavor to it as well. So for me, it was really helpful that I'd already written uh, both a couple of books myself on those communities, but also that I had co-edited a collection of primary sources that had had us going to about two dozen different archives. So I was felt pretty immersed in terms of this period for those different communities that they were living in. They were, there wasn't like they were going to any place that I hadn't already done a lot of archival work on before I started this project. Right, and I love the way that it highlights those Sephardic communities, like you said, they were one of the earliest, and I want to make sure people are aware of that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like one of the takeaways that I hope, I, I think for for most people who know Sephardic history, it's like no big surprise that Sephardic Jews are so important in terms of early history of the Americas. But for people who maybe were right, raised in a more Ashkenormativity kind of setting, right, where where the most of what we hear in Jewish American history is about Ashkenazi Jews and about Great Migration, 1880s onward. I think it's so important to know that Sephardic Jews play this just fundamental role in terms of the establishment of Jewish life in the Americas and are really the Jews to be during this time period that 
one of the things that I point out in the book is when they go to Suriname to convert, they have a choice of synagogues in Suriname. They could go to the Ashkenazi one or they could go to the Sephardic one and they go to the Portuguese congregation because their father's Portuguese. But honestly, if they'd had a choice, that's where they would have chosen to go because those are the Jews who are have higher status, right? So they're, they're really the Jews that everybody wants to be during this time period. Um, maybe that's overstating a little bit, but we see this in families where they're kind of mixed Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Somebody like Mordecai Manuel Noah, he has three of his grandparents are Ashkenazi, but in one grandmother is Sephardic. If anybody asks him what he is, he says he's Sephardic because that's the, the cool kind of Jew to be, right? So again, I think it's really helpful for people to know that the whole vision that Ashkenazi Jews dominate American Jewish life is so recent in some basic ways if you think about the larger history of the Americas. Yeah, I think that's an important point here. So thank you for clarifying that. Um, and really in this book, because you're following one particular family, do you feel, did it feel like you had a personal connection? Did you ever have this kind of essence of family members there? How did it feel like to delve into one family's story? Yeah, so I, I often do kind of family history, but um, definitely, I mean, I think this sort of gets back to your earlier question about methods and I do work on objects. And one of the things that had drawn me to their story besides some of the early references to Isaac, in fact, from his civil, during the civil rights disputes from the synagogue in Barbados, were these beautiful, beautiful ivory miniatures that we have of them. And ivory miniatures as a, as a genre tend to be very uh, visual in the sense of like, the people have larger than life eyes in them typically, um, a little bit like manga or something like that, what we call neotenic eyes. and sometimes people would even send a miniature that was just of their eye to somebody else's like a really intimate gesture and they're they're definitely trying to draw us in emotionally that was the purpose of them originally was to make these kind of strong emotional connections and they were often used for when people were getting engaged or when you were first about to get married to create these kind of emotional ties and for me early on i definitely felt the pull of those miniatures of them as like actual people as opposed to um you know maybe in a fake way but because that's the, what they were trying the miniatures are designed to do but i definitely feel like had i not had the miniatures of them would i have been quite as obsessed with finding out details i don't know right because there is something really powerful about the way in which the miniatures both look back at you through the way that the people gaze at you and the way that they kind of draw your emotions in. So definitely um, over time, you really get kind of invested in people. And pretty early on, I was able to make some connections with some of their descendants and that sort of ability to both get information from the descendants, which was really, really helpful in some cases, but also um, to see that these are people who continue to leave legacies was really important for that process. So I want to go back to something you said before that uh, Abraham Rodriguez Brandon was a successful merchant. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the various Jewish professions at 
the time we're speaking, uh, particularly as it relates to slavery? Did everybody have slaves? What were the functions? Yeah, so so definitely he's unusual in that he is he's the large he has the largest number of enslaved people for for a Jew on the island, um, which is not anything unusual compared to other people of the same class who have different religious backgrounds on the island at that time period. So um, he definitely is sort of like the way far end in terms of both enslaving people and in terms of wealth. And he's unusual for Jews on the island in that he owns uh, plantations, he owns labor camps by the end of his life. Early on, he starts off as just a shipping merchant and he sort of moves into land owning and um, as a consequence enslaving larger groups of people later in his life. And as the the way that the island worked was that in order to be able to be part of the government system, you had to own large tracts of lands. In other words, you had to also enslave people in some sense. Um, otherwise, it's not clear how you would be building the wealth in that, that land. Uh, so, so he's really very unusual within the Jewish community in Barbados. Most of the people in the Jewish community in Barbados are more these kind of small time merchants like the family that um, enslaved the Lopez's. And they're people who owned a kind of everyday store along Swan Street, which is right by the synagogue. One of the members of their family um, owned a silversmith um, slash goldsmithing shop and sold jewelry. They're not people who were um, fantastically wealthy, um, but really were just sort of middle-class Jews in the community. And, and I think it is important to remember that Jewish communities during this time period, we often have records from the people who made more money, but at least half of the Jewish community was actually quite poor and were often on the poor rolls for the synagogue. And that has to do with changes, both the wars that are going on in the Americas during this time period and the disruption of trade as well as changes in the economy as slavery is being abolished um, in the Americas. So really a full range of different kinds of occupations. So one of the, some of the women in the family, um, for example, after they've been widowed, that they start running a little school in order to try and make ends meet. That's starts to be more typical during this time period. But a lot of women in particular, uh, because they're kind of cut out of the circuits of trade. If they're not able to run a store or to run one of these little schools, they often end up being sort of at the mercy of the synagogue who ends up having pensions for them. And we do see a lot, particularly of women and children who um, end up on these poor roles as a result. Okay, so now we're going to move a little bit. I usually like to bring in at least one reviewer. So uh, Professor Judith Weisenfeld said, once We Were Slaves provides new insight into the complex dynamics of race and religion in the early Americas. Set in the context of the worlds of people of mixed African and Jewish descent in the Atlantic world. Could you speak to that? Yeah, so definitely I think one of the things that this book is trying to do, and I've sort of touched on this a little bit before, is mm -hmm. to really use this family as a way of getting at some of those bigger issues that people were facing within Jewish communities if they were multiracial at the same time. So 
for example, um, I mentioned that Isaac was involved in this, the brother was involved in the civil rights movement. And early on, one of the things that really shaped my methods was trying to make sure that I wasn't just tracing the, the father side of the family, the, the quote Jewish side of the family, but was really interested in the mother side of the family as well. Um, and I was able to trace her family line back to the sibling's great grandmother, who was also enslaved to the Lopez family. And in the course of tracing her genealogy and like really trying to find evidence about that, most of which, uh, most of that work was done at the archives in Barbados, was able to find out they're actually related to the first female national hero of Barbados, who is so important for the civil rights movement on the island. So for me, really thinking about, it's not just they also happen to have relatives who were enslaved or who have African ancestry, but that part of their family really infuses how they're um, dealing with life in the Jewish community, that Isaac's interest in civil rights is very much echoed in his much more famous aunt's um, experience of using religion to battle for civil rights on the island. Um, and similarly, I'm really interested in how Jews of color in Suriname are also going through various ways of petitioning in order to gain rights within the communities in Suriname. So again, really trying to think about the methods is not just trying to really narrowly define who is part of the Jewish community, but to think about the ways in which people bring different histories into the Jewish community and that those really enrich the Jewish community in ways that people haven't talked about before. It definitely is a unique take on the situation, at least in my mind, it's a unique take. I haven't seen it other places. So I appreciate that. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about race though. You said that um, they chose the Sephardic synagogue in Suriname and they probably would have anyway. Um, and most people would have. How were these multiracial um, families, in because uh, they, they weren't the only ones, uh, how were they accepted into the Nassau or the uh, Spanish-Portuguese community? Yeah, so this is where I think it's so helpful to like actually go to multiple, in the course of the book, visit different multiple communities, because it's not like each community has the same response to the siblings. And for me, that was really telling, right, like that, that Sephardic communities in early America are very much influenced through various pressures by the local understandings of race that they're surrounded by. So in Suriname, there's a lot of pressure in terms of using marriage to define race. And that in, impacts the siblings in particular ways when they're there, that it just doesn't when they're in London or when they're in New York. And in that sense, that diversity of experience, I think, can help us get beyond like all the Nassau, do something in a particular way, um, but really that there are these local stresses that happen. And, and I would say this is so visible in Isaac's situation because Isaac originally after he converts, comes to Barbados and is fully accepted by the Jewish community. And they, when they're questioned about this by the Anglicans, they are really specific that we, we don't treat him any differently than any other member of the community. 
And he, in fact, they note, is a much more upstanding member of the community, both in terms of his behavior and in terms of what he contributes financially than many of the other people who were born into Judaism. So they're really specific about like race is not something we're interested in. But over the course of the civil rights um, petitions that are going on, he actually ends up through pressure from the Anglican legislature getting basically um, demoted in the synagogue to being a second class citizen and eventually I think leaves the island because of this that he ends up coming to Philadelphia and then New York right after he in essence is kicked out of the synagogue um, through reasons of pressure about race that the Anglicans say if Jews would like to be a vestry if you'd like to be able to vote you can't let Jews of color be voting members of your congregation and they fight over it within the community there's split opinions and then they end up voting against Isaac and he leaves so so again I think that um, that variation of experience between the different communities is so helpful for us for understanding that it's not like there's one exact way that everybody functions across the Atlantic world, even within Sephardic communities that often talk about being very cohesive. So let's continue that thread. We heard about Suriname and Barbados. Can you address a little bit New York, Philadelphia, and England, since those are other stops the siblings? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Philadelphia, New York, so England, um, she, one of the things that had, had Sarah married when she was in Suriname um, to somebody who was a European Jewish, she did. She married an Ashkenazi man, so she kind of marries down in the local idea. Um, she, If she had married about 10 years earlier, tried to marry at Bevis Marks, probably the marriage wouldn't have been allowed, not because she wasn't good enough, but because her husband wouldn't have been good enough. Um, so she, because she marries in London versus marrying in Suriname, her race is not marked in her in her marriage contract the way it would have been in Suriname and her husband doesn't get quote demoted to a lower status because of her being multiracial so that's really a big difference of going to London um, between how it would have been if she had stayed in Suriname um, and again he doesn't really there's not much to demote for him anyway because he's an Ashkenazi Jew so it's not like he's got huge status within that congregation but but nonetheless, like it's not, there's not that same kind of racial um, concerns going on around marriage that we saw in Suriname, which ironically is one of the most inclusive communities in some ways in the Americas. It has the largest number of people who have African ancestry in the Jewish community anywhere in the Americas at this time period. So, so really interesting that they're both inclusive and non-inclusive. She escapes that by going to London. For Philadelphia and New York, um, I was really interested, again, in this kind of diversity within a community where you have in New York, again, it's not one of the things that's fascinating about their story is it's not like people don't know that they were born enslaved, but they're re-racialized as being white as opposed to people of color as they were racialized in Barbados and Suriname. So they're redesignated as white um, and Isaac petitions for being uh, to be a full-fledged member of Sherith Israel 
some of the people who make that decision are people who went to Talmud Torah at Sherith Israel with the grandchildren of his enslavers. So again, it's it's out there in the open. One of them is somebody who is not nice at all, is very racist about African-Americans in the local newspapers. He doesn't complain at all when Isaac wants to become a member of the community. So it's to me very interesting that suddenly in New York, there are definitely people who are abolitionists, some people who are openly racist in the community. But when it comes to thinking about Jews of color, Sherith, the people in Sherith, Israel, see Judaism as sort of trumping all the other categories in some way, it, it would appear. And I would say that that continues beyond the experience of Sarah and Isaac in that congregation, where they're very much accepted and made full members of the congregation. We see that later with other people um, who come, for example, from Suriname into this community. So, so really interesting, again, that kind of variety of experience across the different communities as well as um, within a community, right? And I think for us, that's so important as, as people in the contemporary world to remember, like we're not victims of, you know, everybody does this during this time period. We all have some agency ourselves, right? To, in terms of how we treat other people and how we behave. Um, so I, I feel like that actually is helpful for us to remember too. Very much so. Um, and so you spoke about that you met some of the family members. I'm going to go on next topic, yeah. <laughs> um, that you met some of the descendants of uh, the family members in the book. How did they feel that you were writing the book in general? And what did they feel about your writings? Have so, they read the book also? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the descendants have read the book um, or a lot of the ones that I know about it, you know, who knows about the other ones. Um, but they've been so kind and generous about it. I think, you know, I was very nervous at first because, um, you know, you don't know how descendants will respond. And I had had experiences when I was working with Native American communities about multiracial families and descendants who didn't know that they had ancestors of different races, not responding particularly well. And so I was really so grateful to the descendants that they were so welcoming about me being involved in their their own personal histories right and the as i've pointed out those histories are complex like not everybody in the families comes off looking fabulous all the time um that some of the people come off i would say sarah and isaac are really quite um generous in terms of like how they use their wealth and their father is somebody who was quite involved in slavery and was not always behaving in a way that we would find admirable. So I, so I would say that ability to like recognize our ancestors don't all have to have been perfect all the time when we're reading a book, I'm really grateful to them for that. Um, but I would say also just their generosity in terms of continuing to share information has been really lovely. So recently some people who were descendants of, of the family where they thought they were connected to the family, they were people that I had mentioned in passing in the book of like, hey, there's somebody who was enslaved to, there was a little boy and a woman who were enslaved to Isaac very late in Barbados. And I was totally surprised by this because Isaac stays out of 
enslaving people all of his life. Like he does not engage in slavery. And so he's like, why does he, right before slavery ends in Barbados, why is he purchased this woman and her son and a couple of descendants of that, of that woman and son that he um, had purchased um, sort of in utero um, contacted me and I was able to match them up with the other descendants. And it turns out, and we did some sleuthing. I was like, I think based on the information they had and what I had, that maybe the reason why he had purchased them was actually that child that was going to be born was his nephew. And it turns out that is the case. So it was, um, so really so exciting recently to like have that connection with the relatives who've continued to like reach out to me and like share photos. Um, this is a branch of the family that ended up in Australia, but now so many generations later, be able to connect those branches of the family. Um, they did DNA testing and whatnot. And I just feel like that generosity of like including me and like, um, you know, obviously I'm giving them, helping them somewhat with their, their research as well. So maybe that's like the fantasy that you have a historian who wants to help you with your family history research. But, but I do feel like they've been so kind of including me in the ongoing stories that they've been discovering. That's such a wonderful mutual relationship. I love the fact that you kind of got drawn into them. And so they drew you in even more. Totally. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, your, your specialty is in material culture, among other things, but you do have a specialty in material culture. And so there are some wonderful visuals in the book. Those who haven't read it yet, please take a look because there are some wonderful visuals in the book. Uh, obviously, it's a podcast, so I can't show you. Uh, but can you speak a little bit about, even if you just pick your favorite one or two, uh, talk a little bit about the importance of the visuals and where they came from? Yeah, so gosh. I feel like there's so many of the visuals that I love and I've already mentioned the miniatures, so I won't go into those <laughs> more obsessively than I already have. Um, one of the things that um, that early on sort of also drew me in were some of the daguerreotypes owned by the family. And I talk about those in the opening, that there's something that the family members have passed along. And again, I feel like those do provide us with these sort of insights into how the family styles itself as it goes forward into that next generation. Um, I mean, the daguerreotypes are all of um, mainly Sarah's children and their children. And they're just so charming in terms of insights. You know, one of them, the, the daughter-in-law has these lovely like loops on the side of her hair with these heavy braids. She's a member of the Satius family. So she kind of looks like a Victorian Princess Leia. They're just really so lovely in terms of things that you would want to have from, from the family. But I would say some of the things that ended up really interesting me um, were, for example, the signatures of some of the women of, some of the Jews of color from Suriname who were involved in the civil rights disputes in Suriname within the Jewish community. And for me, being able to see their signatures, both where they signed an X, but also where they signed their own name was like so amazing in so far as that, like you see those lovely Sephardic rubricas, those little curly cue things that happen under the signature. So you see them really like embracing the Sephardic identity. 
as well as just having the written names of people like their own writing their own names for people who've been completely erased and eliminated by and large from from histories and to really see like they're putting their signature on petitions for civil rights for me was just really really powerful as a moment in terms of thinking about um women's contribution to some of the disputes that are going on during this time period and then maybe just a third example um one of the things that i totally totally loved was there was this journal that first of all was so incredibly boring it was a journal written by one of um the brothers-in-law of sarah and isaac um about his journey to from philadelphia to india like india india and you're like wow that's so exciting and it turned out it was just so despicably dull it was like the winds <laughs> were this the winds were that and so disappointing but in that journal after he had brought it home sarah and isaac's children drew little pictures in it of their grandfather's house and uh and practice signing their names with sephardic signatures again with these cute little rubicas on it it was just like so charming to see first of all something that clearly their uncle had really valued that he had kept this really boring journal that um that i found almost useless but having this insight into like how the children themselves are trying even though they're in these families that are like part Ashkenazi, part Sephardic, again, you see them like trying to draw out that Sephardic side of their family that they're getting from, in this case, from Sarah through um, her side of the family and really super freaking charming. I love it. I, I actually, each one, I agree with you. There are so many there to talk about. So thank you for choosing. Um, I didn't want to choose. Uh, <laughs> let's go back a moment just because I want to end with the once we were slaves, the concept of slavery. So Isaac and Sarah were able to buy themselves out of slavery, like to buy their freedom because of an inheritance. Was that something that was widespread at a certain point? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so they actually buy their, their father buys their freedom for them, though you're right that had he not done that, they probably would have been able to do that through their mother because of this inheritance from their from their white Anglican grandfather on their mother's side. And um, no, it's so unusual. And I think, again, this sort of gets back to like, what makes their their ability to like move around the Atlantic world to have this sort of racial slippage is partially because they are very physically racially ambiguous, but, but, but also because other family members sort of veer off course in terms of what's expected their father in terms of freeing them. Very unusual that that happens on the island of Barbados. Um, and had he not stepped up and done that, um, Isaac, instead of being freed when he was about nine years old, would have had to wait for general emancipation. He would have been in his 40s. Sarah would have already been dead and all of her children would have been born into slavery. So it just has this huge impact. Um, and then there's that inheritance that you mentioned. And that also is something that's so rare on the island basically people who were white left their money and possessions to their white relatives and if they didn't have any legal white children they left it to their nieces and nephews and for whatever reason sarah's white anglican grandfather 
decides to go against that. He leaves a very piddly sum to his nieces and nephews on the white side, and he leaves almost all of his estate to his children by two different women of color. So he leaves houses to them, he leaves enslaved people, which is unfortunate, um, and he um, leaves money to them and, and possessions and whatnot. So really very much not in keeping with what was the sort of regular policy of white people on the island. And again, this is something where um, it really sets their life stories apart in ways that most people just didn't have control over during this time period. And I think it's back to that issue of agency, so important to realize like, yes, they have this agency that they're moving around it, but the ability to have that agency is also so contingent upon other people's whims, basically. Thank you. No, this was just a wonderful book. And I think it's so timely because of all the different tensions in today's day and age. It's wonderful to see this um, divisions and coming together in that time. I think it's a lot that we can learn from, right? If we don't learn from history. And, yeah. But uh, I want to talk now. So thank you for talking about this um, once we were slaves. Let's, uh, at the New Books Network, we like to ask, what are you working on now? So Ooh, can you tell so us? Excited. Yeah, so I, I always love when people ask that question. So, so I'm working on two things. One is a book that will be out in August that's co-edited with Adriana Brodsky called Jews Across the Americas and from 1492 to the present. And it is primary sources, it's a source book. And so it's just sources about Jews all the way from the colonial period up until now from Latin America, from, from the United States, from Canada, from the Caribbean. And um, Adriana also mainly works on Sephardic Jews. So as you can imagine, there is a heavy Sephardic presence in that in that book. And one of the things we really were trying to do very deliberately was to get at how could you tell a much more cohesive story about um, the diversity of Jewish experiences across that time period. So that's one thing. The second thing that I'm working on is a new book that's called The Fabric of Belonging that's on Jews and textiles in the 19th century but is different from the usual way that people talk about Jews and textiles. Usually people are talking about Jews in the textile industry and I'm interested in that, but these are mainly handmade items. So they're things like quilts or samplers or clothing um, or little objects that Jewish orphans made in schools um, where they were being taught how to um, do needlework, et cetera, et cetera. So like really, for me, like really charming, but also um, interesting objects that help us understand how Jews are navigating these questions of what it means to belong to a community, what it means to belong to different nations during this time period. Really unique angles on things. I'm so excited to see them both and each of your books I enjoy. So uh, I'm looking forward to those as well and hopefully our audiences as well. So we do look forward to hearing from you more and thank you so much for sharing uh, the Greater Jewish Experience with us and our listeners. Um, Thank you so much for having me.